I just want to tell you about something that I think is pretty cool. Some of y'all will not think this is cool at all because it has to do with Facebook. And some of you are just too cool for Facebook. Let's face it. So um, if that's you, then just tune me out for just a second and, and I'll be back with you in a moment. Um, but this week, we rolled out a brand new um, tool that is going to help us at the story stay connected to each other. And one thing that gets harder as a, as a church grows, as we've seen growth over the last four years, is just staying in like authentic connection with people that go to church here and being able to talk to pastors and leaders and each other, like uh, asking your questions and getting responses, like that gets harder the bigger a church gets. And so um, social media used to be the place to go with that and our, our Facebook page, The Story Houston, used to be really great for that. And then Facebook kind of started shifting their algorithms. And if you're a guru of social media, you know that really pages, like the one we have, The Story Houston page, is not really worth much anymore in terms of engagement and actual authentic connection. And so where it's at now is groups. And so we rolled out a new group this week called The Story Houston Online. The Story Houston Online, you kind of, you got to go search for it. It's not one of those things that's going to show up organically in your feed. You can find it on our page just by clicking groups, or you can just search on Facebook for The Story Houston Online. And this is going to be really um, interpersonal, I think transparent and um, confidential in some ways, because you know that the people that are here are here for a reason, like asking questions about the same stuff we're talking about at the story. You'll get to interact with people that you already know at the story. You'll also meet some new people who come to the story. Um, we will pray together through this uh, group. I'll send out resources and answers to the questions that you um, post about sermon series and things like that on this group. So we're just hoping and asking that all of you who love the story and um, all of you who aren't too cool for Facebook to join us on this group, uh, in this group called The Story Houston Online. You can even do it right now or 20 minutes from now when you're totally bored and done with the sermon. You can just like do it then. That's fine too. But, but however you do it, we hope that you'll do it and, and engage. And the best thing about it for me is the, the ability to engage your questions in real time. The questions that you're asking about the sermons that have been preached in recent weeks or about a series that's upcoming, that's gonna make the preaching here at The Story, I think, so much better um, because it really is a team sport, preaching. As much as it seems like it's just one guy on a stage or one woman on a stage, like it's really a conversation. And so this is a great way to do that. I've already received some questions about prayer from people at The Story. Um, through this group that we just rolled out on like Thursday or Friday. So it's already working. I've also gotten some of your questions uh, from uh, or the email address that we created just for this series, earth to God at uh, the story.church. You can keep those coming. This is going to be a five uh, week series starting now. It's really six weeks total. John Hopper got us started last Sunday by uh, uh, giving a message about what prayer is, sort of the definition of prayer. And for the rest of this series, it's all about your questions. And so I will tell you, I have been pleasantly surprised, but mildly overwhelmed by the number of questions you have about prayer. Sometimes we put out those requests for questions or feedback, and the feedback is scant. Like you, um, you don't really get into it until after the series begins. Well, that wasn't the case with prayer. Like you guys chimed right in from the get-go. And what I realized is that there is a lot of skepticism about prayer in this room right now at church, right? And so if there's a lot of skepticism at church about prayer, then you can only imagine how much there is like outside of this community in the real world or whatever, the secular world. 
So, um, you know, I think as, as much as we've talked about doubting God's existence at the story, you know, if you're new here, you may not know this, but our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. And so we talk a lot about doubts. For the last four years, we talked a lot about why people doubt the existence of God. But what I've learned over the last couple of weeks is that there is something that people, that skeptics are even more skeptical about than God, and it's prayer. A lot of people who sent messages through that Facebook group or through the email address or just through conversations, like they all kind of said similar versions of the same thing, which was basically this, like I believe in God, I'm good with God, I like God, I'm, I totally believe, but I don't believe in prayer, at least in the conventional sense. I don't believe that I can sit down and tell God what to do and he'll do it. So I don't really pray for stuff. I don't really pray for people. You know, the, the way that the Bible says to pray, I think just feels a little outdated or archaic or old school. And I think, a, a, you know, a higher minded or better way of thinking of prayer is more about like uh, self-help or a meditative practice where I find my, my inner peace or I become a better person, but I don't like pray for other stuff. And so if that describes kind of where you're at with prayer, I want you to know a couple of things. First of all, you're in good company. You may be in the majority in this room right now. There's no shame in having doubts about prayer. Like how could you not have doubts about prayer? It is a bizarre thing. When you think about what we're suggesting, when we pray the way that we typically pray, we're suggesting that we, mere mortals, limited by time and space and the finitude of our understanding, like we can demand an audience at a moment's notice with our creator, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe. He is at our beck and call and we can speak and he will listen and we can ask for things and if he is a good God, he will do what we say. Good God. You know, that kind of, that kind of thought is how people hear Christians Talk about prayer. I'm not saying that's what Christian prayer really is. That's how people experience it. And so it kind of sounds a little trite. It kind of sounds like it takes a lot of hubris to pray the way people think Christians pray. And so if you've got some of those concerns, um, then listen, you're, you're in good company. And I really want this series to speak directly to you. You are at the forefront of my mind when I'm preparing um, these messages. So um, for many people, I think in this room included, prayer, instead of feeling like something that actually works, something that feels good, like a good use of your time, for many of you, prayer feels like what the preacher George Buttrick called a spasm of words, lost in a cosmic indifference. You ever feel like when you say a prayer, like it just kind of, the words just drift off into nothingness, like they don't really land anywhere, it feels wasted. I know that grief. I've felt that emptiness when I've prayed in times past. And so um, that's the kind of thing that I think we found interlaced in many, if not most, of the questions that we received. I just want to start um, the substantive portion of this message by sharing a clip or a snippet of an email that I received from a young man in his 20s 
Um, and he came to me after the, service, the last service and, and told me to apologize to y'all for all the grammatical mistakes. I should have caught those and corrected them before putting his email on the, uh, on the screen, but you're not going to know who it was anyway. Totally confidential, but uh, he felt bad about some of his grammatical miscues, but that just means he's human, and we're all about authenticity here at this story. This is what he wrote to me about prayer. Hey, Eric, prayer is probably the part of my faith that I am most skeptical about. So maybe you can shed some light on these topics. I really don't pray for other people because I don't think it does any good. There have been blind comparison studies of cancer patients with outside people praying for healing, some against a test group of patients not being prayed for. Not surprisingly, the patients being uh, prayed for didn't have any statistically significant extra healing rate. Interestingly, though, when you tell the cancer patients that they are being prayed for, there is a statistical difference. And this is an optimistic mindset or secular benefit showing the thoughts part of the political thoughts and prayers is just as good as the prayers, but only if you post it on Twitter. <laughs> I have a hard time believing that God intercedes for us, even if we ask. You ever felt anything remotely close to that? I think a lot of us have. I know that I have. And I think we should wrestle with this. And the question that all of this points to is, what proof is there? Is there any proof that prayer really works? That's what's on a lot of people's minds. So let's just get straight to it. Is there any proof that prayer is worth our time? The guy that wrote this email um, raised uh, some doubts about the studies that have been done about prayer, and I think that's interesting to think about. So um, there have been hundreds of studies that uh, different scientific groups and institutes have conducted to study the effectiveness or the power or lack thereof of prayer. And taken in whole, like, the results are not good if you're a Christian. I mean, there's been a few studies here and there that seem to indicate some somewhat significant statistical differences in recovery rates of those who are prayed for versus those who aren't. But by and large, I'd say eight or nine out of 10 of these studies show that there is no statistical difference. Now, as this guy pointed out, when someone is told that they're being prayed for, there is uh, at times uh, been reported that a faster recovery rate because of some like emotional placebo effect. Like, people are praying for me. Like, it gives you a more optimistic outlook, which in turn makes you feel better and maybe even recover faster or at least report a better outcome. You see what I mean? But if you're a skeptical sort of person by nature, that to you is uh, nothing more than just that, uh, the placebo effect. And what's more is that maybe the largest, most thorough prayer study that's ever been conducted was reported in the New York Times in 2006, and in this study, it was um, reported that not only was there no significant statistical difference in those prayed for versus not prayed for, but even those who were told that they were prayed for had worse recovery rates, and the scientists hypothesized that that was because there was too much pressure on them. Like, they knew all these people were praying for them, and it just weighed on them. Like, it made them nervous. It gave them performance anxiety. Like, I've got to get better. I've got to get better. It made them worse. You know, that's what they hypothesized. I don't know what to do with that or not, but the results are, are unclear on these tests. My favorite study showed that the only difference that prayer really makes is when the person praying uses Father God 
more. Like the more you say Father God when you pray, the more powerful your prayers are. Uh, I can get on board with that, but unfortunately that comes from the Babylon Bee, which is a Christian satire site. It's the Christian version of The Onion, if you're familiar with uh, such things. Um, and so it's, uh, it's fake news. Uh, it's an unreliable <laughs> report. Just to be clear, the number of times you say Father God has nothing to do with the power <laughs> of your prayers. If there's any Southern Baptists in the house, just hear me, please. <laughs> All right. So what are we uh, actually to make of these studies? How seriously should we take them? It would seem as though, if you're a rational person, that there's two paths to take in light of these scientific studies, if you appreciate the scientific method. You can do one of two things if you're a believer. On the one hand, you can take the few studies that do support a statistical um, you know, reason or difference that prayer makes, and you can brag about them, and you can forget about all the rest of them and ignore them. But that feels a little like the bias confirmation or circular logic that Christians are often accused of. And so that seems to fall short. Now, the other option is just kind of getting squishy on your theology of prayer and just kind of distancing yourself from the conventional, historic, Judeo-Christian method of prayer, which is actually bringing your petitions before God and expecting change, expecting things to happen, leaving all of that behind, and instead claiming some kind of a, a modern, enlightened way of prayer that says, look, I, I'm waving the white flag on this other thing. Like, the, those prayers don't really bring any efficacious change, but I do believe that I want to be a better person, and prayer makes me feel like I'm a better person, and so prayer becomes for you like this meditative, contemplative thing that's all about a coping mechanism to get through the day, to make you a better person, and maybe you smile a little bit better, and maybe you feel a little bit better, and that's all prayer becomes. I think we should be very careful and very slow to think that we are smarter and more enlightened than thousands of years of forefathers and foremothers that came before us and prayed in the same way because we think we know more. And so I don't think either one of those options is uh, acceptable if you know me very well. It won't surprise you to hear me say that. I think there's a third and better way forward. Um, when, when it comes to these uh, tests that they've been conducting on prayer, I think there are some important realities to point out. And as much as I love and respect science and what it's offered to the human existence and quality of life, I think there are some very obvious limitations that the scientific method has when it comes to prayer. I'll point out two of those problems, okay? So, uh, if you have friends that like to talk about these studies and, and throw them in your face, if you're a Christian and say, hey, this is, you're wasting your time with prayer and here's why, there's a couple of things I want you to consider. Maybe you can tell them as well. First of all, when it comes to the people that are being prayed for, I want to know who it is that uh, is being assigned to pray. Like, who are these people? It's never really clear. If they know the people that they're praying for, or if they're just random guys that answered a back page ad for 50 bucks and they were given a sheet of paper with a prayer and a name and they promised to say the same prayer every day for six months. Is that what constitutes prayer? It's not really clear in most of these studies whether they even believe in God or whether those who've prayed for these folks in the study 
have surrendered their lives to Jesus? Are they Christians? Like, do they know who they're praying to? Have they recognized their sin and repented from it? Listen, all of that should matter because it's a variable that should be considered in the study, although it'd be very hard to quantify it. But biblically speaking, in the Old and New Testament, there is this clear indication that the power of your prayer is contingent upon the state of your soul. The power of your prayer relies upon the state of your heart. This is Old and New Testament. Not making it up, don't blame me, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Maybe the most famous Old Testament passage about prayer where God says, if my people who are called by my name. Notice the word if. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I think that goes together, especially for men. It's a humbling experience to pray. Humility and prayer go hand in hand. If They'll humble themselves and pray. Seek my face. That means to worship, to put God on the throne of your life and turn from their wicked ways. That means repentance, life change. God says, if this, this, and this, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. Then I will heal their land. The clear indication here is that if people refuse to put him on the throne of their hearts. If people refuse to repent, if people refuse to humble themselves and pray, then he doesn't hear or answer them. And this isn't just Old Testament stuff either. This is Jesus. He says in John's gospel, chapter 15, if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, what is abide? To dwell in, to bathe in, to relish in, Jesus, and if his words are in you, abiding, living in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. All right, so I think, I think we get confused because we've been told our whole lives, if you grew up in church, that the love of God is unconditional. And so we've made this connection in our heads that if the love of God is unconditional, then the power of our prayer should be too. And if God loves us, then no matter how we're living or what we're doing with our time, that when we pray, we should get an equal hearing with God. That's not the way the Bible describes it. For the, in the Bible, the love of God absolutely is unconditional, but the power of your prayer is not. The power of your prayer depends upon the posture of your Heart. And so I'd want to know who it is that's being asked to pray in these studies because that makes a difference. Now, if you're wondering right now, like, wow, so Pastor Eric's saying, if I would only spend my time getting closer to Jesus, then he'll give me everything on my list. Like, I understand that's the logical end to this, except you're missing a step in the formula. Like, you're missing a step, probably the most important step. It's not that when you get closer to Jesus, he gives you everything on your list. It's that as you get closer to Jesus, he gives you a brand new list. A better list. A list that reflects his heart instead of just your own. And you learn to ask for things that really matter. To ask for things that are in line with the will of God for your life. Sidebar. I didn't say this to the other services. 
But if your next question is, if God already knows what those things are, then why pray? Come back next week. That's next week's question. <laughs> A little cliffhanger there. So um, the point of getting closer to Jesus isn't to pull the right strings and get what you want. The point of getting closer to Jesus is getting closer to Jesus. And then your prayer life flows from there. So it matters who's doing the praying. The other problem with these studies, um, real quick, is that I'm not sure how scientists in good faith can um, confirm an airtight control group. So here's what I mean. Um, there are two groups in most of these studies, and one of these groups is not being prayed for by the, the prayer people, whoever they are, God only knows, and uh, <laughs> the other group is. And so then they measure and compare the results of recovery between these two groups. My question other than like who's praying for these people, is that how do they know that these people don't have other people praying for them? It's impossible to create an airtight control. Like, did, did they go out of their way to reach out to everybody they know, like all their loved ones and their pastors and churches and say, whatever you do, don't say any prayers for this person who has cancer <laughs> for six weeks. Like, I, I can't imagine it. Like, did they send a cease and desist letter to the Holy Spirit, who Paul says in Romans 8, intercedes on our behalf when we don't have the words? Like, how do they keep the Holy Spirit from interceding on behalf of these people? Listen, as much as I love and respect the scientific method, it falls woefully short in terms of measuring the effects and outcomes of something like prayer and um, the power of prayer, there's more going on here. Now, um, most importantly, and I think for us, this is a moment of conviction, if this is where you've been hung up about prayer, most importantly, we need a gut check moment here because we need to realize that the purpose of prayer has never been a shakedown of God. It's never been um, like that movie Inception where you try to plant a seed of thought into someone's mind. Like it's never been trying to plant a seed of thought in God's mind. Like, like trying to get something out of God. And whenever your earthly desires become the central purpose of prayer, you've lost the plot. Because that has never been the central point and purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not getting what you want from God. It's intimacy with the Father. The purpose of prayer is not extraction from God. It's a relationship with the Father. All right, this feels like a good time to just pause and say Happy Father's Day. So Happy Father's Day to all of you <laughs> fathers in the room. Uh, and not just biological dads, but adoptive dads and stepfathers. And um, you're my heroes, stepfathers and foster fathers and, and uh, grandfathers and godfathers and every man in the room who's been a dad to someone in need. It's a heroic task. Especially those of you who stepped up to the plate and became a father to someone you weren't biologically obligated to. What an amazing thing that is. When we think about the love of a father, we should think about God. Jesus said that God is our perfect Father. When uh, the disciples asked him how they're supposed to pray, like many of you are wondering, how do you pray? The disciples asked Jesus the same question, and he started very simply. The beginning of his model prayer was our Father, which is a very proper English translation of one word in Aramaic, Abba. 
Abba. That's what Jesus said. In the original version of the Lord's Prayer, it wasn't, he didn't say, our Father. He said, Abba, which, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, if you're going with me to the Holy Land in January, you'll hear kids, little kids, say this to their daddies, because Abba isn't our Father. That's not how kids talk. (laughs) Abba is Daddy. And my conviction is that the Bible translators, when they translated the Bible into English, were too serious to bring themselves to believe that the model Christian prayer should begin with daddy. Because it feels weird. If you don't think so, just try it. Next time. Next time you're praying with some friends. Over dinner. In public somewhere. Hold hands and start your prayer with daddy. Like, it's just weird. It's weird. It's weird. Because we don't, I think it's really weird because at our core, culturally, we're so terrified of intimacy that we just say it's weird because we don't want to, we don't, we don't want to risk that kind of intimacy. We'll stick with our father. Like, that feels a little more distant, a little safer. But Jesus started his prayer with daddy. Some of you didn't have a daddy who loved you when you were little, and I'm sorry, you missed out. I don't know why your dad abandoned his post, or maybe he passed away, or some good reason that he wasn't there, but maybe someone hurt him and he didn't know how to be a dad, but whatever it was, if that's you, I'm sorry. But don't let your negative experience take away from the truth of a father's love. Have you ever watched like from a distance, a dad who gets it. You can't look away. Is there anything better? You ever watch big muscled up gym dad? (laughs) Carrying around a little pink backpack (laughs) and a juicy cup. The little girl, she's got him wrapped around her, her finger. Or do you ever make that mistake of watching one of those YouTube videos of the soldier dads that come home from war and surprise their kids? I got to pause for just a minute because I, (laughs) even thinking about it. And then this week I was prompted to go into a whole different rabbit hole thanks to Budweiser of all things. I wasn't drinking, but it was the commercial, the Budweiser commercial with the adopted kids. Well, they, they weren't adopted yet, but they were kids that, that were asking their daddies to adopt them, their stepdads, after years of sacrifice and love, unconditional love and support and pain and all this stuff that you go through raising a kid. And these kids, through their tears, would just ask, Daddy, will you adopt me? Daddy, will you have me? And there is nothing that daddies wanted more than to hear that. But they weren't going to force the issue on the kids. They were waiting. They were waiting for the, for, the, for the ask. And the kids all asked and the dads all cried. When you see videos like that, once you pick yourself up off the floor, I want you to realize <laughs> that the voices of those kids and the look on their faces, that's prayer. And the look on the father's faces, that's like God is toward us. Ask any dad in here who gets fatherhood. 
what he wants day to day more than anything else. And he will tell you more time, more time, more time with my kids. And daddies will cut corners at work and speed home on 69 and cut people off in traffic to get home, to have more time. And when our kids grow up and leave the nest, we act like we're all tough and we go fishing, but we just cry on the boat. (laughs) We want more time. I want more time with my kids, but I'm not even that good of a father. Like, just ask my kids. They'll tell you I am perfect. (laughs) They love to talk about it. It's their favorite subject. (laughs) Jesus says our father in heaven is our perfect father who loves perfectly. That was Jesus's go-to analogy to describe how God feels toward us, which is to say that there is nothing our God wants. He doesn't need anything. He's all those omni things I talked about earlier. There's nothing he wants more than more time with you. And that's what prayer is. Before all the asking and begging and pleading and all the lists that we make, prayer is time spent with God. I don't want to oversimplify anything, but it's just that simple. On your study guides, I ask two very big questions at the end of those study guides. And some of you that follow those study guides religiously, not to learn, but just to see how much longer the sermon's going to last. (laughs) You're very worried right now. Those are very big questions. And it's 11.55. But don't worry, I'm almost done. Because the answers to those very big questions are very small and simple. You see, when you finally are broken of your pride and your fear of intimacy, you come to realize that those simple truths that you used to laugh at and roll your eyes at are the truest truths. The two questions are why do Christians believe that prayer works and how? Do Christians believe that prayer works? It's very simple. Roll your eyes if you want, but if, you, if your instinct is to roll your eyes, I would submit and suggest that maybe you're still in the grip of pride. Why do Christians believe that prayer works? Because Jesus prayed. <laughs> that's it. For me, that's all that matters. All the other stuff, the evidence and proof and studies and Bible, all the other Bible verses, that's important. But the fact that Jesus prayed, and he prayed a lot, not just once or twice, but Jesus, God in the flesh, truly God, truly man, walking among us, felt a need and found the time to pray and pray constantly. I mean, I've got one example of a prayer that uh, one of the times that he prayed, he says one of those days Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Times like this, he prayed in solitude. Other times he prayed in public. Sometimes he prayed with joy. Other times he prayed with anger. Other times he prayed in sorrow. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed at his death on the cross. Jesus always prayed. And that's enough for me to believe that I should try to pray too. Because even if you don't think Jesus was God, you just look up to him as a really great guy. Even that should be reason enough to give prayer a try.
Why do Christians believe that prayer works? Because Jesus prayed and he prayed constantly. How then do Christians believe that prayer works? And now we've circled back to the original question, which is, is there any proof that prayer really works? Well, the answer is no, there isn't. I'm sorry if that's what you're looking for. I would suggest humbly, gently, that if you are waiting for the sufficient amount of proof before getting on your knees, that maybe you see yourself a little more high and mighty than you see God. Uh, gosh, that hurt to say. As I was saying it, I was like, why did you start this sentence? But I've been there. Deep in the throes of fear, of intimacy, and pride, not wanting to lose control, waiting for sufficient evidence. We do not know that prayer works. There is no empirical data. But you know, there's also no empirical data that show that love works. But we know we were made for it. We keep searching for it, even when our hearts get broken. And whenever someone shuts down and stops looking for love, we worry about that person. We don't want them to be isolated. We don't want them to get bitter and cold and hard-hearted because we know that love is a deep, meaningful part of life. Prayer works the same way. There is no empirical data to prove it, but we know we were made for it. And just like love, once you find it, you know it's true. You were made for prayer. For whatever reason, some of you have struggled to surrender. Maybe it's for pride or fear, but maybe you just don't trust the Christians you've seen call themselves prayer warriors. You don't want to be like them. I get it. But at some point, that stops being reasonable and starts being just an excuse to stay in the driver's seat of your own life. I want to challenge you uh, as part of this series, as we start this series together, to take seriously the idea of daily prayer for the next six days. Starting tomorrow, 10 minutes a day. That's not even taking it that seriously. 10 minutes. Wake up 10 minutes earlier or spend 10 less minutes on your phone or whatever. 10 minutes in focused time with God. You can speak out loud if you want to. I struggle with speaking out loud prayer, if I'm honest. I just don't feel like it connects with my heart. And so I bring my notebook with me anytime I pray and I write all my prayers in here. I don't think it matters to God the means or methods of our prayers. I think... What he wants is time. What he wants is us. 10 minutes a day for the next six days we equal one hour in prayer. And I wanna hear back from you how this goes, how it sits with you. I wanna hear about your breakthroughs, but I also wanna hear about your gridlock. Like if, even if it's not good, tell me. Let's talk about it either through the group that I mentioned earlier or email or in person and then come back next week and let's continue to talk. I believe that if Jesus prayed, we should too. And if he called God our Father, this Father's Day, maybe more than ever, like Father's Day is a time to remember what the love of a true father looks like. And if that's true, he wants nothing more than time with us, his daughters, his sons. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we don't always get it, the logistics of 
something like prayer. And sometimes we are hung up on the things we don't fully understand. Help us, Father, help us to trust you more, to abide in you, to let your words abide in us. God, help us to see that the power of prayer doesn't come from the asking, it comes from the heart, from the intimacy that we have with you, from the trust. We understand that's where faith comes in. Help us who are afraid or proud to take the risk of a leap of faith, to pray to you as a child talks to his father. In Jesus' name, amen.